Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me, Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. He is one of the founding fathers of African literature, the winner of countless honors and awards, and the author of dozens of acclaimed essays and books, including the groundbreaking novel Things Fall Apart, which celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. His works have been taught throughout the world, and he's a hero in his homeland of Nigeria. You are my brothers and sisters. I've been away too long. The novelist, poet, and professor, Chinua Achebe. You think you are the greatest sufferer in the world. Do you know that both that men are sometimes banished for life? Do you know that men sometimes lose all their yams and even their children? If you think you are the greatest sufferer in the world, for whom is it well? For whom is it well? There is no one for whom it is well. The, the space allowed allowed me in the in the way the world is is um, is uh, organized is inadequate. Uh, wherever I look, whichever direction I look. Um, and I don't want to stay in that space because it is it is stifling. Um, racism, uh, for one, even on our own continent, 
um, all kinds of mistreatment. The most recent, for instance, is the dumping of the toxic wastes from the industrialized world in the in uh, in Africa. So. Um, that's what I mean by saying that the world is upside down. The world is not is not is not well um, arranged. It's not well arranged, and therefore there's no way we can be happy with it. And no way, even as writers, uh, sometimes our our colleagues in the West suggest that perhaps we are too activist. Uh, we are too earnest, you see. Um, why don't you relax? You know, this is not really the business of poetry. Uh, the the point the point is this: uh, a poet who becomes who sees poetry in the light in which I'm in the light I'm suggesting uh, is likely to uh, fall out very seriously with with the emperor, with the emperor. And uh, whereas the poet in the West uh, might say, oh no, we have no business with politics, we have no business with history, we have no business with anything, just what is in our own mind, the emperor would be very, very happy. Because the storyteller has a different agenda from, from the emperor. You've certainly done your share of offending the emperor. In fact, you draw a devastating picture of government in, in Africa, ministers living in princely mansions while the peasants and the workers live in shacks. You've talked about the corruption of democracy, the bribery, the vulgarity, the violence, the, the brutality, the rigged elections. Uh, aren't you concerned that in these novels, which are gaining a growing audience in the West, that you are reinforcing the stereotypes of many Westerners toward your own people? Well, I can see that danger. Um, but that doesn't really bother me because I am not concerned primarily with those. I'm concerned with, with uh, the people uh, whose story I am telling. And uh, if I'm a bit harsh, that harshness, I think... Chenwa Achebe, the Nigerian titan in the literary world. Scholar, activist, and poet died March 22nd at the age of 82. We honor him tonight at our common ground. The Iroka has fallen. He taught us, but we seem not to have learned. Things fall apart. the call and they came. Witnesses on the bridge. They came to change a nation and raise up a people. This is our common ground. Thank you for being with us on our broadcast tonight. Tonight, a freedom and justice warrior. SNCC veteran, civil rights fighter, human rights warrior. Our common ground is honored to be in conversation 
with Ruby Nell Sales. Witnesses from the Bridge. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Stay tuned. Witnesses on the Bridge. And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. We hope that you have settled in. We've got a lot of work to do. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Tonight at Our Common Ground, joining us in conversation, Ruby Sales, the human rights and social critic activist from right out of Atlanta, Georgia, and I'll be telling you more about her as she joins us. And I could not go into this broadcast tonight without paying tribute to Chinoa Achebe, a Nigerian-born novelist who essentially uh, made his home uh, on the um, shores of America, following the prolific historical and essentially literary bombing uh, across the country in 1958 of with his first novel, Things Fall Apart, which sold millions of copies and was translated into 45 different languages. We hope that every Our Common Ground listener has read this book. It is one, when it was first uh, published, did not receive unanimous acclaim. Uh, there were especially British critics who thought it idealized pre-colonial African culture at the expense of the former empire. Some were offended, but over the years, uh, Professor Achebe's stature grew until he was considered a literary and political beacon. In 1998, the New York Times book review, the novelist Nadine Gordimer, hailed him as a novelist who makes you laugh and then catch your breath in horror, a writer who has no illusions but is not disillusioned. We hope that you will go to our website at ourcommongroundtalk.wordpress.com or to our Facebook page to read about him and to understand the import of his work. He was more than an author. He was a great author and a great scholar. And if you have re read Things Fall Apart, you understand, as he told this tale, two intertwining stories um, of a strong man and a man who traced his grace within the tribal world and the transition into the mysteries and the compulsions of the black soul you will understand why I say here at Our Common Ground tonight that the Iroko has fallen. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, and I hope that you are all well. I did miss you over the last two weeks, um, 
and we hope that you enjoyed our uh, series, continuing series, Witnesses from the Bridge. Uh, in the first part, we had as our guest uh, civil rights activist, veteran Florence Tate. Last week, we offered our um, a former interview uh, with uh, Barbara Arnwine, the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, and the week before that, we rebroadcast our interview with Ohio Senator Majority Whip, Minority Whip Nina Turner. And all of those you can find in our archives if you wish to revisit them. Um, the other housekeeping thing that I have for you, we would like to ask you to support our broadcast, to support our project, TruthWorks Network. And um, we we are still committed to independent black media. Uh, in all forms, whether it's written. For those of you who are new to us, this is the 28th year of broadcasting as our common ground, and it is in my blood. What can I say? It's just in my blood. It is my life. It is my life's work, and uh, it takes a lot of effort to bring you broadcasts like this, and we'd like for you simply to support us by... Uh, liking our Facebook page, by joining us on Twitter, by leaving us comments on our, our many websites. We've got a lot of websites. Um, and to join our community forum so that you can stay up to date on our programming, both at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com and truthworks.ning.com. Uh, and that will help us. We are trying to build our listenership so that we can uh, get some perhaps private grants uh, to do more, uh, to have our own platform. As you can see, the media has become a core of the attack on democracy in America. Uh, we are ve very re much regret that we are in our community, uh, understanding the issues of labor and how important it is losing uh, Ed Schultz at MSNBC on a nightly uh, basis, and we hope that uh, Chris Hayes will continue uh, the education and the insightful analysis of labor in America. Tonight at Our Common Ground, in our continuing series, to encourage you to take racial justice as a personal commitment and responsibility, witnesses from the bridge. And our witness on the bridge tonight is Ruby Nell Sales. She is a nationally recognized human rights activist and social critic. Uh, she grew up under the tutelage of Professor Jean Wiley and the coaching of Kwame Ture, Stokely Mike Carmichael, for those of you who remember what was the black liberation struggle and freedom struggle in the 60s. She joined the St 
Student Non-Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and went to work as a student freedom fighter in Lowndes County, Alabama. There she worked with people like Bob Mance, Gloria Larry, Jimmy Rogers, Willie Vaughn, and local people that included Clara Mall and John Hewlett, and we're going to be asking her about that. As a social activist, Ruby Sales has served on many committees to further the work of reconciliation, education, and awareness. She served on the steering committee for International Women's Day, the James Porter Colloquium Committee at Howard University, the Coordinating Committee, People's Coalition in Washington, D.C., and we would be introducing her all night if we continue to list all of her achievements in her struggle in the movement for social justice. But we do want to underscore that in 2009, the History Makers named her a History Maker for her con- contributions to civic affairs. She currently serves as the founder and director of the Spirit House Project, a national organization that uses the arts, research, education, action, and spirituality to bring diverse peoples together to work for racial, economic, and social justice, as well as for, and folks get the word, spiritual maturity. Spirit House houses Sister All programs that bring black women together in assemblies, in the classroom, and in performance spaces to renew our historical roles as a community of activists, spiritual guides, and leaders. She is the co-convener of Sister All Four, which is a conference that is going to be planned for Atlanta, Georgia, hopefully this year, and we'll be talking to you more about that. Once again, welcome, and you need to write this down if you want to join us in our conversation with Ruby Sales. We'll be opening up our phone lines um, following some discussion to get a sense of the insight and wisdom of Ruby Sales. Ruby, my dear sister, thank you so very much for joining us at Our Common Ground. Thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you very much for allowing me to stand on common ground this this evening, and I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, tell us, uh, let's start off by finding out how you found your place in the world. How did you decide to become a freedom fighter? And what inspired and and preserved you uh, during that time? And tell us about. I'm sure you have have many stories. I know that that at one point uh, you were along with some other SNCC workers uh, almost lost your life uh, and was saved from being killed. But tell us about this journey. Well, first of all, I think our life, my journey was a progression, a life in progress. And the first important place with me was my family and my mother and father's unwillingness to bend their backs to segregation and the many ways in which they protested in their daily lives. 
And then it was my school, Carver High School, which was the bastion of black advancement in the black community. And my professors and my principal had a deep commitment to advancing the race, educating black youth uh, for the preservation of our rights and liberties. So they were very vocal, very vigorous, very supportive of developing young black people. Uh, This was a common vision that existed throughout the South, and black people put their resources, their time, their energy, and their love, and their commitment to building up a community of black youth who would take on the responsibility of liberating the black community. And I found my voice, all of that came together for me, at Tuskegee Institute where I entered in the fall of 1964. And Tuskegee at that point was beginning to be a hot spring of student activism under the leadership of Gwendolyn Patton, the first black female president of the student council at Tuskegee Institute. And then, of course, there was my dear professor, Jean Wiley, who introduced us to literature, to the to the varied voices of uh, Richard Wright, James Baldwin. And these voices had a profound impact on my development and finding my voice. James Baldwin, in particular, when he wrote the essay uh, about being a stranger in Switzerland, I realized that in many ways I was a stranger in America. Although I was born in America and grew up in America, it was at that moment in reading that particular essay, Stranger in the Village, that I realized that I, Ruby Sales, was a stranger in America and in a country that did not know my name. And so the other major Major influence on me was when Stokely Carmichael came to our class, invited by Gene Wiley, and talked about uh, the movement, the Southern Freedom Movement that was happening in the South and the necessity of students to immediately become a part of that movement. So those factors had a great influence on me. Uh, You said something very interesting, that you understood that America did not know your name. And that moved you in some way. But combined with, I mean, you talked a lot, Ruby, you just talked about a lot of absolute black power, positive forces in your life. How did you distinguish between your segregated Alabama experience at Carver High School and when you went on to uh, the outer world. Was there one incident? Well, first of all, I need to just be very clear that our parents were geniuses. They permitted us to grow up in a brutal system of segregation with a profound sense of our of who we were and a profound sense that we had a, a destiny in life and that we were not broken-winged birds uh, because of segregation. And I think that they were real geniuses who who really taught us that one could one did not need to bend to systems of oppression. And I did not have any idea 
that I was even poor. I did not have any idea that there were all these profound restrictions placed on black people because I felt no restrictions in the world that my parents had created. Yes, I knew segregated ex- segregation existed, but that world was less important to me than the than the world that my principal and my parents created that said that I am somebody and I could be somebody throughout my life. So I can't tell you of any single incident that uh, made me feel the weight of segregation or made me feel that I was less than anybody else. To be quite honest, my community made me feel that I was just as important as anybody else in society and that I needed to walk tall and look the world straight in the eyes. And 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 so you sought out those who you were that were like you, and because you came out of a community that gave you a sense of preserving what was your strength. Well, I think having more a, of what they told you you were. I think, in a real sense the community made it very clear that my career should be inextricably bound to the struggle of my people. And so I sought out opportunities to live out that expectation. I did not see myself as an individual separate from the the goals and the needs of the black community. If I were going to be somebody, that had to be realized within the context of the community advancement. So basically this driving desire to make a difference was embedded deep inside of me and it was those it was opportunities the opportunity to to uh to live out this expectation. Uh this op- this was the thing that motivated me. And so it just so happens when I went to Tuskegee, trying to find myself, trying to find my voice, these magnificent young people played a great role in helping me find my voice and and putting me in a direction that changed my life and made me a freedom fighter. But the desire and the drive was already inside of me based on my public schooling at Carver High School where my principal would tell me, Ruby Sales, you're going to be a great lawyer. You talk too much, and you're going to do great things for the race. It was never (laughs) Ruby Sales. You're going to be a great lawyer and do great things for yourself. My success was always tied into the survival and the success of the black community. So I, I believed that. That was deeply ingrained in me. And I could not imagine any life without work for the black community. That, that's really interesting, Ruby, because my experience w- was so parallel to yours um, that I grew up in the segregated South, and I had people who told me that I was somebody, and they were yes. saying that long before Jesse Jackson came around. Right. Saying, <laughs> I mean, uh, you had teachers who cared about and who envisioned for you a future. Now, how did you get in? I I know that you went to uh, Tuskegee and you were just looking for the people who were ready to bring on the revolution. 
how did you begin to get involved in organized freedom fighting? Well, I, Stokely Carmichael came to Tuskegee, as I indicated, and I hung out with a group of young people who were um, very rebellious, but we were directing that in, a, in, in what I think a very negative way. We were going down to the pool at Tuskegee, drinking Catawba Pink, and just hanging out. And when Stokely Carmichael came to Tuskegee, he not only changed my life, but he changed the life of the young people whom I was hanging out with. So we all became very passionate about the movement and wanted very badly to find a place in the movement. And I got that opportunity when Stokely Carmichael invited me to come go down into Lowndes County. And Lowndes County had a history of being known as Bloody Lowndes. It was a very violent county the majority of the people in the county were uh, black people comprised the majority in the county. And so wherever black people constitute the majority in the South, it was extremely, the white repression was extremely violent and very intense. And my first week in Lowndes County, Soakley took me around the county with people to register to vote. And the sheriff literally pulled the gun on Stokely and said, tonight, nigger, you'll be in hell. And Stokely Carmichael calmly said to the to the sheriff, and I guess it will be a segregated hell, I mean an integrated hell. That just blew my mind, that kind of courage, that kind of commitment, and and the fact that Stokely did not bat an eye, just really did something to me, made my commitment stronger. And I said to myself, you know, I must be a part of this movement. And that's really the galvanizing moment for me, seeing Stoker Carmichael stand up to, uh, to a gun and not be afraid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that people minimize his voice and his presence during that time in really inspiring our generation. Because I ran away from school to go find Stokely Carmichael uh, to be part of the movement. But as I told Florence Tate, in our discussion, they sent me back because I was too young. <laughs> and they didn't want to go to jail. Right. Uh, um, and we were at Palmer Institute in North Carolina when Stokely Carmichael came to North Carolina A and T. And I was ready for I was ready for the party. What what however. And um so I understand the kind of the intensity of the need to be part of something that was you knew was so important that it was a, going to be a game changer for the for for the world, you knew that, and I think that we uh, make a mistake when we minimize to the extent that he ignited young black people all over this country. Well, I want to add to that because I think another thing we minimize is that Stokely, Kwame, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture not only galvanized young people, but he had a tremendous, tremendous influence on local people in Alabama and in Mississippi. Stokely was deeply loved 
in Lowndes County, Alabama. Stokely was deeply respected because Stokely deeply respected the community and the community deeply respected Stokely Carmichael. And so he played an essential role alongside the community in breaking the shackles of terrorism and injustice in Lowndes County, Alabama. And we do not give Kwame Ture credit for the tremendous evolving role that he played in the Southern Freedom Movement. As a matter of fact, our only image of Stokely is the image of him when he involved into um, into his black power stage as the movement evolved. The movement was not static. It was constantly evolving. And Stokely Carmichael was a, a part of its evolution into black power. And so the image of Stokely Carmichael is always an image of a hateful, fiery, uh, mean-spirited, racist person. That kind of distorted image uh, of Stokely Carmichael is the historical image that lives in most of the minds of black people, unfortunately, and almost all white people. Mm -hmm, mm Now, what was the... Coming out of your act, your organized activism as a student and moving into looking at the matters of how spirit intersects with the love for justice and the rights of all humans, how did you make that transition? What were what were the things that became uh, priority to you? Well, I think that trans uh, transformation was a work in progress for me. It did not happen overnight. As a matter of fact, in my early adulthood, I would call myself probably anti-religious and did not recognize, even though I was in the heart of one of the most spiritual movements in in the 20th century, in my youthful naivete, I did not understand the whole notion of spirituality. As a matter of fact, I thought black people spent too much time on their knees and not enough time at the voting uh, polls, or not enough time at the uh, court. Since the spirituality did not enter my consciousness um, as part of social justice until I was really in my late 30s when I began to understand that Justice is a way of living that has to do with your how you who you are inside and who you are out on the outside the the making the connection between your inner and outer journey and to understand that justice really is about your whole self and that's what spirituality is spirituality is about the breath the very breath of our lives what we breathe out and what we take in and what we do with that. So I began to understand spirituality in a very different kind of way. And as I began to understand that, I began to understand that the Southern Freedom Movement at its best was a movement, was a spiritual movement uh, of transformation that not only opened the gates of freedom for African Americans, but opened the gates of freedom for white people and gave them an opportunity and gave black people an opportunity to remove the impediment of injustice and segregation from our lives. And so I understood that the galvanizing spirit 
of the movement in the South came from the the kind of spirituality that black people had had developed all the way from enslavement up until the Southern Freedom Movement and the songs that were black that represented the ways in which black people talked back to a world that said that it was against the law for us to read and write during enslavement. And so those songs represented the dynamic spirit of African Americans who refused to be silent, who refused to be non-existent, who refused to give homage to the to to the enslaver as the alpha and omega of their lives. It it was the zest poured into generations, the hope poured into generations that allowed us to sustain ourselves and to advance ourselves as we faced one of the most egregious systems of oppression um, that had existed in the Western world. And so I began to understand spirituality not as religion, not as prosperity gospel as it is presented today, but a way of life and the drive to be whole in a society that breaks you because you're black, in a society that breaks you because you're poor. Spirituality is that drive to become whole and to resist being broken. Well, it certainly has been the um, path of of your career. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand, Ruby, the idea of being a freedom fighter, a justice worker, a person who wants to transform the world in which we live as a career. And you have done that. You have done that deliberately with purpose and a whole bunch of brilliance in what you have done at the Spirit House Project. And um, and and I certainly applaud all of the work you're doing. We're going to talk about, about the work that you're doing. But <clears throat> what gives you the resilience, especially, and I want to ask you uh, to take a look at America today mm. uh, in the light of your aspirations for it. I think resilience comes from the, my resilience comes from the observations of black people in my community and how they, the audacity to be a maid and send five children to state colleges, black historical colleges, the, 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 the audacity to show up and be present in a society that said that you should be invisible the audacity to keep pruning and building generations of African-American children when there was no evidence before you that the world would change, that anything would change. The voices in my head of all of the black people who talked to me as I grew up as a child, the image of my grandmother at 78 years old walking five miles to the post office in this rural town in Alabama to get the mail. The old black women who sat in the amen corner in my church with crackling voices, raising hymns, and and being so much a vital presence in my life and their response to me. 
uh, as a very omish uh, young girl whom they took great pride in, even when I broke the rules and they had to set me straight. So I think that resilience is not individually driven. I think you draw your resilience from the stories of resistance, from the stories of love, and from the examples that's put before you that you can survive and that you can survive with great dignity and you need not drop uh, in the struggle that you can go all the way for justice without being broken. And that doesn't mean that you won't have challenges. That doesn't mean that you won't feel down sometimes. That doesn't mean that you won't be blown away by by the loss of friends who've been assassinated by the state. That doesn't mean that you won't weep as you look at the ways in which the black community has been shattered by culture wars uh, unleashed by white supremacists in response to the gains that black people achieved in the, during the Southern Freedom Movement and the way in which democracy finally came to a very fascist region in this country. It doesn't mean that you don't grieve over the number of black youth incarcerated within the prison industrial complex. However, it does mean that you draw on those stories uh, of resilience that's at the heart of black survival in this country to draw your hope, meaning, reason, and will to keep on struggling. Hmm. I just want that to sink in for a minute. Um, as your as a freedom fighter. I want to ask you to comment on your responses, your reaction, your um, how the world shifted for you on uh, a number of events that happened as you found your way through the turmoil of worrying for our people. Let me ask you, about where you were and what your response was and what your resolve, because you obviously had a resolve, at the assassination of Martin Luther King. Well, I was a part of SNCC, and we had, as young people I want to have, very ambivalent feelings about people who are older. And so on the one hand, I was a part of that generation of young people who thought that we did all of the frontline work and Martin Luther King got all the credit. At the same time, I recognized his power. I recognized him as a motivating force in the black community. Let me give you an example. Martin Luther King came to Lowndes County one time, and my colleagues, my peers in SNCC said, here he goes again. Well, we're just going to go to church, but we certainly are not going to say amen. And and we really resented that here he was coming, getting the glory in Lowndes County while we were doing all the hard work. So we all went to church that night. And when Martin Luther King stood up and began to preach, before we knew it, we were all on our feet, shouting, yelling, me, Stokely, Bob Mance. We just went crazy at his tremendous power to articulate 
the spirit of movement, his tremendous power to talk to black people in a black language, to use symbols that were readily available to ordinary black people, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, a shelter in a raging storm. That was his genius, his ability to talk to ordinary people in language and symbols that they understood. And so we had the bottom line, a very profound respect for Martin Luther King. And like most black people, he moved us when he preached because mm-hmm. he was talking from the souls of black people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and, and I think that many people who did not live in that space in that time or younger people who were not born or were too young to understand what was going on would be surprised about that kind of ambivalence. I experienced that as well. I was working with the 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 Boston Black Panther Party. Well, we could have to call it New England at the Topographical Center, and had a, a very cynical, uh, ambivalent view of Martin Luther King until. I saw him on TV speaking, or I heard one of his speeches, or I saw him. So uh, I think people need to process the kind of uh, experience that that might have been so that we can put it in a more contemporary context. Let me ask you about the murder of Medgar Evers. I was a little young when Megger Evers was assassinated and murdered. So that, while I understood what had happened, it certainly did not enter into my consciousness in the same way that the assassination of Martin Luther King did, the assassination of Jonathan Daniels. And uh, those things were right at my reach, at my fingertips. I think Megger Evers, although I later began to understand his significance and and the meaning of this assassination within the context of white supremacists carrying out a tradition, whether through lynching or or, or, or shotgunning black people down, of trying to dim the struggle in the voices of African-American people and to maintain white supremacy. So I think that I was deeply impacted by the assassination of of Malcolm X, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Jonathan Daniels, and uh, the murder of George Best. I think those things really touched me on a more present level than did Megger Evers, I think, if I'm truthful. And Emmett Till, I think I was deeply, uh, I still remember the picture in Jet Magazine where his battered and broken and just Oh, my God, the horror of his body stayed in my mind for many, many days and many, many months. And I was deeply touched by the assassination of two local doctors, Dr. Burrow and and his friend who were registering African Americans in the 1950s, trying to get registered African Americans in Columbus, Georgia. So these things were more 
readily available to me. Those assassinations were more readily available to me, and I think they deeply influenced me in a way that Mega Evers did not, if I'm mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, 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 I think that, um, and I always tell this audience that uh, when Emmett Till was murdered, and Jet Magazine and Ebony Magazine was my source, it was when I realized that children die. That's how I discovered that children die. Um, And um, I was shook to the core on the assassination of Malcolm X and spent many weeks trying to figure out which way? Um, let me ask you about another event. Trayvon Martin. Well, I think Trayvon Martin must be put within a context. And I think that today we're living under the the umbrella under the terrorism of white supremacist violence. And I think a great deal of this violence is directed towards black men. But also we must understand that black women are targets of this violence, this police violence, police murder. And it's a way of intimidating and holding the black community in check. And the nation accepts the assassination, the murders of black people by police, because black people, white people have criminalized, white supremacists have criminalized African Americans and dehumanized our images in the public minds by telling them that we're naturally criminals, that our mothers are welfare queens, that we are not a part of the a moral majority in this country. By inference, we are immoral. All of the and that young black people are different from all other young people. That they are hoodlums and thugs, and that they use this to justify the assassination of young people like Trayvon Martin, and also they to they justify they use it to fuel the prison industrial complex. So that when you lock up thousands of black youth. Nobody really cares because they're animals anyway. And so we have bought into that propaganda, not only in in white America, but also in black America. I hear many people say, if you do the crime, you do the time. The problem with that is that people, that that's not an equal proposition, that white youth who do crime do not suffer the same penalties as Latinos, most particularly Puerto Ricans, suffer and black youth suffer. So it's really going against your own children. And really in some real ways the country should have, we should have stood up with rage as a community when Zimmerman shot in cold blood Trayvon Martin. But the reason why we didn't is because somewhere in our souls we believe that young black people are thugs and animals and that they bring these situations on themselves without understanding the political meaning of police assassination and police brutality, which resonates deep in the history of America all the way back to enslavement when police 
forces or militia were used to hold uh, enslaved people in check. All the way through segregation, when police uh, would stand in crowds and watch black men be lynched. This is nothing unusual. This continues a long trajectory of using the police in the South and in urban areas as a means of social control and terrorism. And what strikes me so odd about all of this is that black people, we are not angry about the constant assassination of black youth by police. Because somewhere in our souls, we have given up our children. Mm. We have given up our children. The thing that was so different when I came up as young people, there was all this propaganda about black youth being animals and black youth being different from all other youth inferior all the, the ways in which uh, the police, uh, you know, intimidate and try to uh, terrorize young black people, uh, and the constant depiction of black people in, in local white newspapers as animals. Um, the difference is that our parents did not believe that. They did not accept those definitions of who we were, and they refused to bend to those definitions, and they refused to give us up to that kind of system. But today, black people believe that about our children. And that's what's And we different. want to talk about how we break that cycle. Thank you for being with us. You're listening to and tuned in to Our Common Ground. Witnesses on and from the bridge. Ruby Nail Sales, a nationally recognized human rights activist and social critic, is our guest tonight. She has preached around the country and spoken at national conferences on race, class, gender, and reconciliation. She was a founding member of Sage Magazine, a scholarly journal on black women, and received a certificate of gratitude for her work on Eyes on the Prize. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue in conversation with our beloved sister, Ruby Sales. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. As long You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves, each Saturday, 10 p.m. This is our series, Witnesses from the Bridge, celebrating the women who came to change a nation and to lift up a people. Stay tuned. Look around you. One in four kids in the U.S. faces hunger. It's not always easy to see the signs, but in this land of plenty, there are kids that don't know where they will get their next meal. Join Share Our Strength in Food Network and take the pledge to end childhood hunger here in America by 2015. Learn how at nokidhungry.org. Their next meal could come from you. 
want to thank all of you for being with us. If you are listening on your smart device or your telephone, you can join us in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. I'm Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. We thank you so much for being with us tonight as we continue in our series, Witnesses from the Bridge. Rise up, black men. I said rise up, black men. Rise like the rush of a million men marching up mountains to obtain their mental manumission. Let African pride be your ammunition and let's engage in sedition if we must. Because it's up to us to uplift our nation from the dust of dreadful damnation. Rise up, black men. On March 21st, 2013, the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the U.S. Human Rights Network, and the Human Rights at Home campaign launch the Once and for All campaign. This is Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Once and for All campaign is a national call for the Obama administration to develop a national plan of action for racial justice in consultation with communities directly affected by structural racism in the United States. On March 21st, 126 national and local organizations signed to an open letter urging the Obama administration to uphold its human rights obligations by addressing structural racism here at home. The U.S. has ratified the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and is obligated to address structural racism. The National Plan of Action will identify concrete steps the Obama administration intends to take to fully comply with ICERD or ICERD. I'm Janice Graham, and at Our Common Ground, we're asking you to sign the petition, join the call for the Obama administration to develop a national plan of action for racial justice and spread the word on the hashtag once for all the number four once for all you can call on the Obama administration to adopt this national plan for action for racial justice by joining the US Human Rights Network at ushrnetwork.org ushrnetwork.org here at Our Common Ground, we're asking you to do what you can, and this is something that you can do. Get involved. Move mountains to change the nation and to lift up our people. USHRnetwork.org. Sign the petition. Join the call for the Obama administration to develop a national plan of action for racial justice. And please, spread the word about this action and about us. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Rivers of my fathers Rivers of my fathers Carry me home 
champion this cause of something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. And then he set her up by backing off. Well, if she will come and talk to us. Right. Yeah, and she yeah, came yeah. and talked to you, not alone, she came and talked with the CIA guy. Sure did. And he basically backed up everything she said, but now they have larger concerns. Now they're crying and whining about the filibuster and the reform of the filibuster. Not only should they reform the filibuster, they should drop the nuclear option on the filibuster. And when you hear people like Mitch McConnell saying that if they do this, this will poison the well forever, well, I'll take your threat and I'll raise you to shove it in your behind. Right, Robin, and Reason. Advanced Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. The Alpha Show. Only at TruthWorks Network. Friday, 10 p.m. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power. Tonight, we're honored to have with us Ruby Sale, who answered the clarion call to change the nation and to lift up our people. She is the director and founder of the Spirit House Project in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for being with us. And we want to thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground in our series, Witnesses on the Bridge, celebrating women who came when they heard the call. Ruby Sales, thank you so very much for being with us tonight. I am so honored to have you. And you know I love to talk to you on the telephone. (laughs) (laughs) I could listen I could listen to you all night long. Your 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 history is so rich, so deep, so full of the nurturing and nutrition that our people need. And and I'm just honored to be able to present your voice because your voice is strong, it's clear. It's it 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 it, it, it it just resonates with the kind of insight and wisdom that our people need right now. We we are, I mean, you know, we are in bad shape. We are begging on every end of the pole right now because we don't have, we don't seem to be able to find our feet in the era of Obama. What's going on, Ruby? Well, first of all, I think that we probably need to sit back and as uh, as as individuals and also as parts of a collectivity to ask the fundamental question of what was the meaning of the Southern Freedom Movement and what did we imagine as our destination? 
I think that we become very confused, that we thought that the movement meant big jobs and positions and careerism, but that was not the meaning of the movement. The movement was very clear. People in the movement was very clear that they did not intend to integrate into a burning house. What we wanted to do was to clear out the rubbish and strengthen the rooms for democracy. The ultimate goal was democracy. The ultimate goal was human rights. The ultimate goal was human dignity. The ultimate goal was the health and well-being of African Americans and other groups in this country who struggle for freedom. The ultimate goal was to transform many white people from white supremacists into brothers and sisters. The goal of the movement was not individualism, it was not careerism, and Fannie Lou Hamer, if she were alive today, would say that we didn't come all of this distance to support someone's career. And it was never, we understood that to sit in the king's seat had had a series of built-in problems because the king works for the state and not for the people. And so we never thought that our liberation lay in electoral politics. We thought that that was important because it's important in democracy. It's absolutely necessary in democracy to be able to vote and to have a voice. But that must not be confused with thinking that inside politics and inside politicians can give their best to the people. When to be a politician, to be inside politics, is to oscillate around compromise and, and, and people who have money. And so it's not, in many ways... The, the discussion should not be centered around Obama. The question should be centered around, for us, what is the meaning of freedom and what was the meaning of the struggle and where we must continue to struggle and did we struggle for things? Did we die? Did we bleed? Did we lose many vital people, older people and younger people, for the pleasure of driving a car? For the pleasure, you know, black people today, our meaning comes from titles, Dr. This and Dr. That. Dorothy Porter Wesley, who was one of my mentors and dear friends, told me that when you're a part of a struggling community, there's no need for doctors to be calling each other those names, those titles. What's more important is to see each other as sisters and brothers. So we have gotten off track. And the other profound thing that has happened to us is that we have internalized a great deal of our oppression, and we do not understand the culture wars that have been unleashed against the black community, against the black family, against black public, the public schooling of African-American youth, uh, the black church, uh, all of the institutions that were lifelines for black people during uh, segregation, uh, Southern apartheid, and enslavement. So I think that we have given in to the temptations of empire, and we believe that those that the titles, 
that our legitimacy comes from empire rather than our legitimacy coming from our struggle and the work that we do to advance democracy and to advance people in this country who suffer under the heel print of white supremacy. I think that there is a great deal of confusion, and we have allowed the media to define our lives and our destination. We must ask, where are we trying to go as a community? And what do we need? What is the cargo that we need to discharge in order to get there? And what is it that we need to continue to build on in order to get there? I can't say enough about needing to understand the forces of the culture wars that white supremacists unleashed on the black community even before the ink was dry on the Civil Rights Bill to regain the power that they thought they had lost uh, in the, during the Southern Freedom Movement to uh, return the South back to Southern apartheid. We are here not because our failed personal choices but because we failed to draw deep analysis about the culture wars and its implications and the ways in which we have participated as a community in advancing our own oppression, our own internalized oppression. Let me just say very clearly, let me talk about the black church. The black church was a space in the black community, not perfect, but a gathering space in the black community where black people could come together and talk about and pray about and sing about being free people and not bending to the notion that we were inferior because we were children of God. And as children of God, we were equal to everybody the black church was a liberating force that gave us the language, that gave us the, the, the symbols that allowed us to weave our way through the valley of oppression and experience the desire to be on the mountaintop. Now, the black church, and so the common understanding, the theological understanding in the black church was, I might be oppressed but I'm somebody, I'm a child of God. I have value in the world, not because I have money, but because I'm a human being who's in favor with God. And we understood that God intended for God's people to be free. That's very clear in Exodus. That's what the whole story is about. It's a social commentary on injustice and the fact that God intervenes in human history and to provide open doors for people to struggle and to become free. God is not pleased with oppression. That was what we were told. Exodus was very important to, to, to the black church. That was the story that we drew on. Now, today, in, in most black churches, the theology is a materialist theology that says that I am somebody because of what I have, that God's favor is reflected in the possessions that I have, that people who do not have material blessings the way of affluence are people who are out of faith with God. You can't get to freedom on prosperity gospel. It's a bankrupt theology that is highly capitalistic and dehumanizes 
our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. And so that we imitated white evangelists who had always operated on prosperity gospel, that they felt that they sat on the throne of power because God had shown favor to them. Now, this is what abounds in our community. Why in the world would you imitate the theology of a people whose God was an oppressive God, who God who's, who felt that God's presence in their lives was manifested through domination, power, and materialism? Why would any sane group of people who had uh, that kind of theology in the face of enslavement that used scripture to justify enslavement? Why would any reasonable, intelligent people adopt a vision of God that resembles the God that has fueled oppression? Why would you give up a liberating God who brought the Israelites to freedom? So what you're saying is the bankruptcy that we are experiencing in our faith communities, which have always fueled our resistance, is now the very institution that, for the most part, is selling us out and further corrupting our spiritual well-being to the extent that we have surrendered. Well, I would say it's much more complicated than that. Sarah Diamond in Spiritual Warfare tells us that millions and millions of dollars that white supremacists through Christian coalitions and other organizations through uh, evangelical outreach into college campuses spent millions of dollars to promote this brand of theology and to unleash this theology on people of color everywhere. It's not just black people whose spirituality has been corrupted. It's also Native Americans. It's also Latinos. Um, and so that this was a very clever plan where billions of dollars were spent. One of the things that white people did as they began to develop what's called the Southern Strategy in terms of black people, they wondered and began to ask, how is it that this these people could stand up in the face of guns, horses, billy clubs? What is it that they possessed that allowed them not to be afraid and to continue the struggle? And they realized that it was Christianity, the liberating Christianity, not oppressive Christianity, the liberation Christianity that said that I am somebody. I'm a child of God. I've got a right to the tree of life. You can tear me down, but I'll build myself up. That kind of theology. And so what happened is that they began to understand that in order to regain power, they must take over black Christianity. And so they unleashed a culture war on black spirituality. Let me give you an example in the black church today where you stand, you say, neighbor, neighbor. That didn't come from black people. That came from white evangelists on TV. And, and so 
these kind of artificial ways of being connected. We didn't need artificial ways of saying neighbor, neighbor. We were connected to our through our common struggle and our common desire and our common impulse towards freedom. And so it's a much more complicated story than being sold out. Yes, pr- black preachers are complicit in the oppression and the promotion of prosperity gospel for their own personal advancement. At the same time, the Christian white Christian movement on TV has played a tremendous role in shaping who God is for African Americans. You see, one of the danger of losing your history, of losing your culture, is that you let people like white evangel- evangelicals come on TV and come into your life and tell you who God is and what God has been for you. Your history tells you who God is and what God has done for you. It tells you that God sustained African Americans in the heat of the most torrid systems of oppression in the Western world. But that's not who white people, it tells us that God is the lily of the valley, a bright and morning star. That's not what what evangelical theology tells us. And so it has defined God for us, God of prosperity, God of power, mm-hmm. God of individuals. And we have let go because we believe in the deepest part of our internal oppression that what white people have is always better than what we have, and we're willing to give it up. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we are. That's where the, just in terms of the church. If justice is spirituality, how can you work for justice in a non-liberating spirituality? And so how do we, we turn the, how do how do we begin to make the transformation from where we have come landed to where the direction that we need to go Well one really, of the things that you know we, that I'm very concerned that we are not I mean you come to our common ground every Saturday night and and we're essentially while we exchange very important information, very important insights, we're essentially talking to the choir. I'm concerned about getting to a whole group of generations of black people who have no sense of what you learned at Carver High School. That's a very important point, and that's some of the work that the Spirit House Project is doing. One of the things that we did last year was that we convened a group of young people into a congregational singing group. And basically what they did was to sing the songs and understand the historical meaning of the songs that had brought black people through. We brought people like my mother when she was well to the group to pray the kind of prayer that says that God woke me up in the morning, uh, unloosened my limbs, and I want to thank God for the multiplication of my tongue. Those are important prayers because it says that we owe our lives not to the oppressors but to God. And so these young people were utterly transformed by that 
by that experience. Historically, they thought that congregational singing was very ignorant. They didn't understand that it was a way of maintaining community and telling our stories and the good news in the world. So we have to begin to work not on grandiose levels, but we have to begin sometimes on very small levels in the places where the cracks are very deep. If you do not believe that your ancestors created anything of great substance within the church or within America, then how do you move forward as a group of young people? Because you're going to need those voices in your head to draw on. You're going to need those stories to draw on. And so we continue our work with bringing up a new generation of activists through the Jonathan Daniels and Samuel Young Fellowship. Most recently, our students renamed that themselves Freedom Fighters. And so they have been working to unveil one of the most insidious forms of racism in our day, which is a prison industrial complex that influences every aspect of black and American life, economically, socially, politically. And so they have done a tremendous job in uh, researching and writing papers on the on probation for profit, on uh, for, on the ways in which schools discipline young students like kindergarten student Alicia Johnson, who allegedly threw a tantrum in her kindergarten classroom. The school called the police in Milledgeville, Georgia, put this young girl in in handcuffs and took her to jail and booked her. This has become the practice of schools in dealing with what they call uh, problems in the classroom. And so we need to begin to, first of all, it's not just the choir. The choir also doesn't have much of the information that it needs because how many in the choir, how many people are talking about probation for profit? where you end up with a $100 ticket, you can't pay the ticket, the court assigns your case to a commercial company, they begin to tack on all kinds of administrative fees, your license is suspended, nobody ever tells you that your license has been suspended, you're driving down the street one day, you get arrested because your license has been suspended, and in addition to that, your fees are escalating from $100, now they're up to $600, and a warrant is out for your arrest. And so the court system making money off the backs of poor people through probation for profit. So what and, I'm suggesting and, and is a massive... And the same system is in neo-slavery. Yes, and I'm suggesting that we need a popular education campaign. Because part of the difficulty that we face is that academicians oftentimes do not do the work, share the knowledge that the community needs in order to move forward and speak in a language that the community does not have access to. We as a people who are still struggling, knowledge must be functional. It must be one of the tools that move us from one step to the next in our struggle for for liberation. So we have a whole series of issues that transcend what ordinary black people are doing, people who have been educated off of the struggles of the movement owe a real obligation to take their knowledge 
and to come home and to use that knowledge to move forward their lives because they grow by being in community as well as the life of our communities. So we have a series of problems where black energy has been misdirected and we brought into the notion that it's better to teach at an Ivy League school than it is to teach at a historically black college. And I can just hear my friends talking about, oh, black colleges are so problematic. They don't do this. But the truth of the matter is I taught in white colleges for many years. And let me tell you, it's no easy job in the midst of all that racism. It's not easy to teach at a white school where the dean calls you in the office when you give a white student a C and never calls you in the office when you give a black student a D. So I'm just saying part of the internalized oppression is a deep, Dream that runs throughout all of our lives. And until we realize this, the impact of this propaganda, this criminalization, this Southern strategy, you know, we all, many of us, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you did too, uh, was a part of a movement where uh, during, the, during the 60s and 70s, white people like they had done in Africa, identified the best and brightest black students and gave them scholarships to white schools with the understanding that what they had learned is that there would be opposing loyalties in these young people that would make them never want to go home again. And if they went home again, they would go home not as a brother as a brother or a sister, but as people who were critical of their communities because they didn't do things the way white people did and the way they had learned um, in Ivy League schools. And so well, I'm not putting that on anyone else's back because I was a part of that generation that was given scholarships to Manhattanville and Princeton. But we have to look at co-optation as a movement to to weaken the ability of a community to defend itself. Mhm. Mhm. Well, we. I know I've said so much. You don't know where to go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is why uh, I'm in conversation with you because uh, from people like you, we learn to tap into our own affirmations about what has happened and what needs to happen and what is happening. Well, let me just Um, say, Janice, what is happening with Spirit House right now, the Spirit House Project, is that we're having a summer institute under the auspices of the Jonathan Daniels and Samuel Young Institute where we will be traveling, two buses will be traveling to the communities in the South. Let me just say something about the South. The South has reinstituted Southern apartheid in every vein that runs through the South. Resegregation, Time Magazine said that resegregation of public schools will be the battleground in the 21st century. The South has become, the red states are red because they hold up the banner of white supremacy. And we don't begin to, we have not begun to analyze or even understand what the South has become today, and what are the the issues that dominate black life today. 
you're talking about a, 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 a region of the country that educates white students on the black backs of black students and then say that they're poor public schools, that they're inferior. Yes, you would be uh, hard put to comp- compete with a school that receives, with a white system that receives $250 million taxpaying dollars in Georgia for white academies and public schools while b- black while the public schools, which are predominantly black, receive less than 2% of public taxes. Mm. And and I want to say to to our audience here at Our Common Ground, and this is speaking truth to power, the Spirit House, located in Atlanta, Georgia, is a frontline and consistent voice for racial justice. When you're thinking about spending your money to go to Disney World, and when you're thinking about spending your money to go to Mexico or wherever you go on vacation, I'm hoping that in our audience we become more mature to say, wow, the Spirit House is someplace for the Freedom Academy this summer. I need to be taking my children. How much does it cost, Ruby, and... How can I sign up? Well, we're still working out the cost, but well, what I want to say well, about it. I want it, people to start thinking about these are the things that we need to be doing. That is more educational than anything else you can do with your children. And we will be taking people to cities in urban areas and black belt counties. You know there are 117 black belt counties in this nation where black people comprise the majority. And most of those counties are located in the south, and most of those counties were the seats of the Southern Freedom Movement known as the Civil Rights Movement. The assaults on those counties have been most egregious um, and most consistent. And so we will be going to about eight of those areas, rural and, and urban, and where local people will talk with us about the manifestation of racism in their communities and how they are working to change it. Now, they will be the legitimate teachers. Their voices will be the voices that we hear, not voices from the academy, but people who are doing the frontline work in communities. And we're turning upside down the notion of who is the legitimate speaker for black struggle in this country. And so we will have on board with us Resources like Annie Pearl Avery, who worked in SNCC in Alabama, who was a leading force in SNCC. But what our whole purpose is to shatter our ignorance about what's going on in this nation to gain a better understanding of the Southern strategy of the prison industrial complex, of juvenile injustice, of economic. You know, we live in a new kind of plantation system where where prisons are the new plantation and black people's the profit from our labor goes to the big corporation who are part of the prison industrial complex. And if you've got um, a half a million black people in jail working for these corporations, the money is not coming in the black community. We don't yield the profit. These mm-hmm. corporations yield the profit. For example, uh, the Prison Corporation of America made a deal with municipalities in the South and said that we will give you so million do- so many million dollars if you promise to have our jails filled for 25 years. 
This is actually true. This is not an over-exaggeration. This is actually true in terms of the prison industrial complex and its alliance with municipalities. Drive down the street and in, in the south, what do you see again? Chain gangs. Chain gang labor, labor doing the work of municipalities, whether it's working on the roads, whether it's working in the courthouse. These, these men and women, well, you rarely see women, but men, the chain gang is back. Do people right. know and that? I mean, who's clearing, the, who's clearing the snow and cleaning up the leaves in the fall and cleaning the streets all year round in the city of Boston? But prisoners. Right. But has anyone stopped and said, my God, the chain gang is back. Mm-hmm. And they have to actually pay for the ankle uh, weights that they wear. The prisoners have, these men who are in prisons have to pay for that. Absolutely. I have posted in our chat room how you can get in touch with Ruby Sales and her Spirit House Project Staff, info at spirithouseproject.org for those of you who are listening and not in the chat room. Spirit so House. watch out for our announcements by going to www.spirithouseproject. Watch out for our detailed announcements of our summer mission on the road. And well, this will I've... be, uh, I, I want to say that our interns or our fellows of Freedom Fighters will play major roles in carrying out this initiative. This is this is a wonderful thing to do and I think that that the expansion and our support of this kind of activity is so important because we spend thousands of dollars. I mean, I was talking to my daughter the other day and we were looking at camps for my grandson. And the camp where my granddaughter attended, we wanted him to attend. It's $6,000. Hell, I could build a camp in my backyard for $6,000 and have <laughs> 10 kids. You know, so, um, and, and, and we're talking about two weeks. So I think that in our community, Ruby, you, the kind of things that you are doing at the Spirit House, we have got to support. We have got to expand. We have, I mean, we run around and don't call up on our common ground talking about how we got to save our children. If we right. don't begin to give them the foundation of understanding their engagement, their connection, their responsibility Absolutely. and obligation to justice and freedom and the community from which they come and give them a sense of community, it's we ain't going to save them. We, absolutely. And we must make a commitment in exactly. our communities to exactly. change our understanding of our young people as suspects to investments. That's right. They are our greatest resources and they are deserving of our investments. And we must work to 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 change them from collateral damage to important people in the world. Exactly. We're if we don't love our children, no one will. You're, Ruby, one of the things that is just so uh, important 
in the work that I do is to be able to have people who have not only forward vision, but that forward vision is informed by a backwards look at this journey that we have been on for such a long, long time. This is our common ground. We're going to take a break. 781, you can call right back. Our number is 347-838-9852. Speaking Truth to Power will take your calls to speak with Ruby Nell Sales, human rights activist, community leader, and organizer, leadership educator, spiritual leader. And I think that it is so important to have her voice, and we are honored to have her. We'll be right back. They heard the call, and they came. Witnesses on the bridge. They came to change a nation and raise up a people. Witnesses on the bridge. Thank you for being with us tonight in our series, Witnesses from the Bridge, in conversation with Ruby Sales, a human rights, justice, and freedom warrior. We thank you for your support and for your listenership at our coming ground. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Thank you for being with us on Our Common Ground. Please join us on April 6th, an evening with Dr. Renoko Rashidi, his life and his work, right here at Our Common Ground, April 6th. I'll be listening for you. With historian and historical researcher and author, Dr. Renoko Rashidi. This was at a time in the early 20th century when you could see uh, European imperialism uh, moving into the third world and see people people being wiped out, like in Australia. Like Commentaries on the Times Radio with Clay Bell Benjamin, Thursdays, 10 p.m. Insightful, 
history, arts, music, examination of the events of our time with Playbell Benjamin, Must Radio, at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Thursdays. Commentaries on the Time Radio with Playfell Benjamin, live and call-in talk radio from his renowned Commentaries on the Times e-magazine, only at TruthWorks Network. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. It's the I Declare Show. Hi, this is Janice Graham suggesting to you that your Monday through Friday talk destination must be I Declare on Blog Talk Radio with India Declare. Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. Oh, no, honey, we can't put in, we can't, oh, my gosh, we can't have any expectations of clean air. Who are we, the American people, to want, I don't know, some clean air and some clean water? God forbid. Oh, let's see. Anti-education, Pell Grant, screw it. If you can't afford to get in, you ain't getting in. That's the uh, Repub motto. And, of course, the anti-woman. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. I don't want the government involved in anything unless you have a uterus. If you have a uterus, buddy, we are, look, now, you tell me. That does not seem to be in the favor of the American worker. We have seen the aggressive assault and attack on labor in this country. Clearly, there is a degradation of uh, the standard of living in this country. I I think it is just flat out uh, undeniable. People are uh, learning to live with less, uh, on less, and, uh, uh, and it's tragic. The poverty numbers are uh, through the roof. Come join India Declare, bringing it real, raw, and right now. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. Where spirit matters. Across the board, the reality of racism, the part it is playing in frustrating the aspirations of millions of black children all across this country through poverty, through inferior public schooling, through poor health care, etc., and recognize the part that racism plays in that, or, 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 or we aren't. And if we aren't going to recognize it for them, then we're not going to make any excuses about policy failures in the White House either. If it ain't no excuses for them, it ain't no excuses for him. If they can, if they can face the hell that they're catching and still be expected to succeed, then damn it, we expect to get a public option. And we expect to see some social justice. And we expect to be some, see something done about the plight of the poor. Don't give me that the economy is too bad. You know why? Because we got no excuses. Because we just a zero-sum game. We believe. Only on TruthWorks Network. Your Wednesdays just got better. 
Soul of Fire with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, Wednesdays, 10 p.m., where spirit matters. This is Alpha of the Alpha Show. At TruthWorks Network, we are asking you to support the Bobby Sox Project, providing new socks to veterans and homeless persons. Bobby Sox are an important many men and women who are on their feet all day. Because shelters and other resources do not provide places to rest, and sometimes weather means wet feet and other problems which cause all kinds of foot problems. At TruthWorks, we are asking you to support this worthwhile effort, Bobby's Socks. Donate new socks for the homeless and for homeless veterans. If you want to give money, you can pledge $20 a month for 12 months. Three people pledging $20 each month to purchase 180 pair of socks. If you want to send socks or donate, contact Bobby Socks by email. Bobby at gmail.com that's Bobby Socks by email, Bobby at gmail.com. If you can, help where you can. Thanks. You are listening to TruthWorks Network in support of Bobby Socks. As long You're listening to Our Common Ground. Speaking truth to power and ourselves, each Saturday, 10 p.m. This is our series, Witnesses from the Bridge, celebrating the women who came to change a nation and to lift up a people. Stay tuned. Thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight we are honored to be in conversation with Ruby Sales. And uh, Ruby, I want to give you some feedback you're getting in the chat room in case you're not in the chat room. I'm not in the chat room, girl. (laughs) (laughs) One of our regulars says, it's been a long time since I've just sat and listened. Please have Ms. Sales on again soon, like next week and the week after that and after that one. Oh Love God. you, Miss Sales. Um, and Dot Don says Miss Sales hit that out of the ballpark on today's so-called prosperity gospel. I agree one thousand percent. And in um, uh, Nathaniel Gilchrist is saying, I agree, Tracy. Miss Sales is very captivating, and indeed, you are. And I am so glad to finally get you on this radio. But you've got some people who want to talk to you as well. And 781, I see you dropped. If you would like to call back, our number is 347-838-9852. For a very short time, we're going to take some calls, Ruby. 405, you're on the air. I respect you, and you are with Our Common Ground, on Our Common Ground with Ruby Sales. Good evening, Janice, and good evening to your wonderful guest, Miss Ruby Sales. Thank you. Thank you, 
John, for being Thank with you. us tonight from Oklahoma. Yes, and I'm not going to be long. You know, normally I have a little dissertation I usually give, but you know, in, <laughs> indeed you do. <laughs> in the interest of time, I will be very brief. I uh, commend uh, you, Janice, for having the uh, caliber of uh, of individuals on your your programs and that belong to TruthWorks that I can truly say are really, really making a difference in our community with reference to trying to empower our youth and our Thank people. Thank you, Don. Yes, I mean, I, I mean that from 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 my heart. Uh, uh, you know, we, she's she's getting all kind of love in the chat room, and 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 rightly so. And I can see why you uh, uh, just would just love to just just talk 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 to talk 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 and talk and talk and talk with her, because she is very 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 uh, uh, informative. She has a vast amount of knowledge and experience to impart to us and I will be coming to Atlanta from Oklahoma my father lives there uh, shortly and I will certainly get by to see you uh, Miss Sales and I will certainly help you now you're the type of person that I will do uh, whatever it takes to see, to see to it that you have whatever you need and I and I hope people who are listening to us this evening, um, if you can help her in her mission, just do whatever you can. Alpha's doing something with the Bobby Sox. So if you can just support these types of individuals in our communities, uh, you know, this is what we really need to uh, bring about the change. This is working at the grassroots for the cracks. To where, the, to, to where the water is going down to the roots. That's where it needs to get. Thank you very much, Miss L. Thank and keep you. Keep up the good work. And I, and, I, and I just commend you for your sacrifice that you've made. Thank you, Janice. Thank you, Don. Thank you so very much for joining us tonight. As always, you are always with us. Um, Ruby, I, I think that one of the things that we can do here at our common ground to help you develop and expand uh, Spirit House Project is to continue to talk about your projects. And I have been talking about your projects. As a matter of fact, a couple of months ago, I read from one of the papers written by one of the Freedom Fellows at Spirit House in talking about the prison industrial complex. Um, you know, and I'm hoping that next year this time I'll be talking about the freedom camp for junior high school kids. I mean, well, we actually, have... we are having a freedom camp, Janice. The in, the uh, fellows or freedom fighters, the last three weeks of the summer internship, will have a summer camp for young people to teach young black people to teach them how to survive. Uh, the prison industrial complex, how to survive when stopped by police, a a summer camp for survival, and the understanding of racism in the 21st century. So we'll have a little youth camp in Atlanta, not nationally, but just in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Well, we're hoping that maybe doing, you know, Ruby, my my brain is always going with the idea. Girl, I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and 
And for those of you who are listening and know of the work of Gray-Haired Witnesses, Ruby is one of the founding members of Gray-Haired Witnesses for Justice. And so we've got to find a way on the radio. You know, I think everything should be on the radio. If I think that the 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 every night of the summer camp, we ought to have a broadcast where the children can come on, the students can come on and talk about yes. what you're doing. I mean, we have all this technology, and we're just simply not using it enough. And we need to hear the voices of Dean Steed, Amber, uh, uh, Javier Nicole, all of the young people who are gathered around Spirit House, uh, who are part of the Spirit House family, whether you're talking about young people who've moved on to New York, Aquarius, or Kendra, but who are a part of the Spirit House family. We have provided economic support for young people who are trying to find jobs, young people who are trying to be in school and eat, and young people who just need some place to be somebody. Uh, we I'm have hoping, done that. I'm, I'm hoping that of the thousands of people who are listening to this broadcast tonight, that people are thinking, because I'm certainly thinking about it, about uh, how you organize in your either in your church or your community centers or yes. uh, how you organize to get a bus of children from your community to go to the freedom camp uh, at the at the end of the summer. And it's our hope that next year, not this summer, but the following summer, it will be larger and more national. But right now, I think it's important to realistically start in a space that is achievable. Mm-hmm. Let me just if you'd like more look. information, again, you can go to spirithouseproject.org, www.spirithouseproject.org. And you can also donate to Spirit House Project through our PayPal, or you can send your donations to the Spirit House Project, 846 Rigdon Road, Columbus, Georgia, 31906. And we're certainly um, going to tell you that all you have to have, go to PayPal, get an account, and you put in the email address, info at spirithouseproject.org, and your money will go to Spirit House Project. It's not complicated, folks. <laughs> Very easy to do these kinds of things. Rubinell Sales, you are a treasure, a national treasure. Thank you. And I just, there's, there's no way in which uh, I can express to you my in my love for my people mm-hmm. the work that you have done the sacrifices that i know that you have made and i want you to know there is not a day that passes that i don't think about you and what you were doing and the deep commitment and passion i mean you got to love black people to work for black people I mean, there's no getting around it. And you have exemplified the kind of love, the kind of understanding. And see, on top of it, Ruby, you're smart. Uh, You're brilliant. And, And your voice 
clarifies for us in the sea of confusion what we must do. And that's not an easy thing to do. And so I am just so very grateful uh, for all that you do. Uh, And likewise, I'm grateful for all that you do. I'm grateful for your lifelong commitment of creating a common ground out of which we fertilize the roots of freedom in this country. And I thank you very much for your resilience and bringing together collective voices that speak out of the souls of the black community and talk with us about the ground that we stand on today and how we might enrich that ground, not only for ourselves, but for future generations. If I could just have a moment to say something about women, because we have been in this place where we stand today after black reconstruction, Black women met in Charleston, South Carolina in the early days of the 21st, 20th century where Mary Church Terrell went to Charleston and stood in front of an audience of black women in the steaming heat of a, of a summer night. And she raised the question to these black women who were trying to deal with how do we organize ourselves as a community in the face of the rise of white terrorism and southern apartheid? And so she simply asked these women, can we do our work in the heat of the day? And the heat of the day, of course, was the oppression. And black women stood on top of chairs and they yelled out, We can do our work in the heat of the day. And that has been the motto of black women throughout centuries, generations in this country, the gift and the genius to do our work in the heat of the day in the face of white oppression, in the face of debilitating circumstances, and to create not only successful young people and a strong community, but a future for black people, including our youth. The question is that I pose to our audience today, tonight, is are we still a people who can do our work in the heat of the day? Hmm. And ladies and gentlemen, that is Ruby Nail Sales. Ruby, thank you so much. We hope you'll you'll come back again. I hope I didn't thank keep you, you up thank too you, late. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And our prayers are certainly with you and your family, and for you to continue to bring the strength, and bring the power, and bring the brilliance to our people. Thank you so very much. And the same to you, and to everybody who's listening to the program. I wish each of us the will and resilience to do our work in the heat of the day. In the heat of the day. That was female sales. Thank you all for being with us. Next week we're going to be talking about the housing crisis for black people across America. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
Rise up, black man. I said, rise up, black man. Rise like the rush of a million men marching up mountains to obtain their mental manumission. Let African pride be your ammunition and let's engage in sedition if we must. Because it's up to us to uplift our nation from the dust of dreadful damnation. Rise up, black man. I said, rise up, black man. Rise up like a million men marching against the tide of societal injustice. Rise like a Nubian phoenix turning that anger that burns incessantly on your inside into a torch that you take to toss onto the next generation so that they can take that flame and frame a resilient picture of our future. Rise up, black man. Rise to the occasion. Show the world how black men are still in the households and not all in jail. Still pursuing their education and proudly paying tuition, not bail. And you, you bold black men on lockdown must show the world that you got your head up with your eyes on the prize because that prison cell you're in just could be a blessing in disguise. See, even in the prison where we live like slaves, black men, you have the power to break those chains or handcuffs and collectively call everyone's bluff because we got too many fakers out there fronting like they're down with the cars. But behind the scenes, they're pulling you down of those crab cars. Be it through legislation, corrupted investigations, or trials with inadequate legal representation. So I say rise up, black men. Rise up and show the world that we're taking command of our destiny. And vow out loud that I will never let them get the best of me. Because God is calling on us to do our best to see a brighter day. So will you rise with me, black man? Will we collectively take a stand until we win what is right for the hour? Because there aren't enough hours in the day for play. To be a real black man, it's that ignorant, afraid of freedom mentality we must flex. So take a deep look into your eyes and realize it's time to rise. Just rise up, brother man, and take a stand. Rise up, black man. I said rise up, black man. Rise up. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. I'm Janice Grant. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves.